0: Lord God in heaven, who indeed is like you? The answer is no one. There is none like you, so holy, so righteous, so true, rightfully exalted today in our hearts and on our lips. Lord, we give you all the glory, all the honor and praise. And we ask now that you would humble us as we come before your word, that you would make yourself great in our hearts and in our lives. As we seek and desire today to be changed by you, by the power of your spirit. To change us, mold us, grow us, and to equip us to go from here as effective members of your kingdom. And so we turn to you, Lord, again, to thank you for our salvation. Truly, there is no savior, no redeemer like you, our God, our rock, and our salvation. We praise your name together as your church and your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're wondering where Pastor Jesse is, this is actually, let me remind you, the first week of his family's three-month sabbatical. So please keep them in your prayers during this time of rest and renewal. In the meantime, just so you're aware, if you need anything, please talk to Pastor Eric or myself or our elders in training, Greg and Vin. We'll be happy to help you and to allow Jesse and his family to enjoy this break from ministry. For us, though, we're not taking a break. We're continuing our series in 2 Samuel. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Chapter 4, we'll be reading the whole thing today. And as you turn there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever put your trust in the wrong person? Have you ever put your trust in the wrong thing? Maybe you've fallen victim to a scammer. Maybe you thought someone was your friend and they proved not to be. Is there a time when your trust was misplaced? There was a news story out of Belgium from 2013 where a 67-year-old woman named Sabine Moreau was supposed to pick up her friend from a train station in Brussels, 90 miles away from her house. So she put the address into her GPS and started driving. And after a while, she had to stop for gas. She thought nothing of it. She filled up her tank. Then the signs on the road changed from French to German, and she thought nothing of it. Eventually, she got tired and even had to pull over for a nap. And after that, she kept going. She kept following her GPS, and over the course of two days, she drove 900 miles. And later, when asked what happened, Sabine said that she was just distracted. She didn't think anything was wrong. She just trusted her GPS. That was a pretty outrageous story, I know. I actually wonder if it was originally from a tabloid and mistakenly got picked up by news outlets without verification, or maybe there was just some other mental health issues going on that weren't reported But you know, there's lots of stories like this, people following their GPS and blindly turning off into rivers and lakes, even driving off bridges and through fields. And the funny thing is when I was writing this, I was actually reminded of my own story that I once did that too, actually. It was late at night in an unfamiliar area, actually just right after we moved here in 2016. And fortunately, I'd only gone a few hundred feet. It was in the dark, it was at night, but I was driving through a park, like actually the park, and I realized my Google Maps was set on pedestrian mode not car mode. And so it could have been disastrous. So I do not look down on Sabine Moreau uh, and I'm humbled to, to admit that, but have you ever placed your trust in the wrong thing? Let me recap real quick where we are in second Samuel. All right. Israel's first King, King Saul has died. And now there are two rival Kings in his place, right? The one appointed anointed by God, his chosen successor, King David, but he only rules over Judah. And the rest of the tribe of Israel right now are submitting themselves under the leadership of King Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who was propped up by Abner, the commander of Saul's army. But in the last chapter, Abner defected from King Ishbosheth, and he went over, persuaded all of Israel to follow David, pursuing peace and unification under God's chosen king. But as soon as that happened, David's army commander, Joab, came in and murdered Abner. So now Abner is dead. And Israel's brand new peace kind of hangs in the balance. And that's where chapter 4 begins. And so if you look down Second Samuel chapter 4, if you're in your Bibles or on your phones, we'll read the whole chapter, 12 verses. Second Samuel 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, For Beeroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house, as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna his brother escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rahab and Bana his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of ish and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of God. Today we're going to consider where we place our trust in others In ourselves or in the Lord. And what we'll see is that trusting in others will fail us. And trusting in ourselves will end us. But trusting in God will save us. And we'll see this through exploring an interesting image that is here for us in the text. The picture of hands and feet. You'll see what I mean as I go. So let's jump right in. The first picture we see is slackened hands and feet. Slackened hands and feet. In Verses 1 through 4. King Saul's dynasty is sputtering to an end while the nation of Israel tries to answer the question, where is our hope? Who can we turn to now? And as they look at their options, we find a useless king on the throne and a useless contender to the throne. One has drooped hands, the other lame feet. And what these impotent appendages will show us is the ultimate hopelessness and futility of trusting in any man. That to hope in man is no hope at all. Their first option is Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, excuse me, verse one. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. This is where we get the image of slack hands. Now you say, James, I didn't see that in there. Uh, it's because it's not there in the English. When King Ishbosheth hears about Abner's death, the Bible says, his courage failed. Now that's not a literal translation of the Hebrew text, but it's an interpretation of the idea being expressed. The actual words say his hands slackened. His hands went limp. They fell, they dropped, they were paralyzed. This, of course, isn't literal, okay? It probably wasn't that the shock of the news caused a stroke or anything like that. Rather, it is figurative, hence the English translation. They didn't take it literally from the Hebrew. What he experienced was a paralysis of his will. His leadership ability was effectively frozen, The dropping of his hands indicates the loss of confidence, the loss of hope. His spirit is extinguished. His strength is sapped. This is the image of a man giving up. It's like when you're watching your team in the playoffs. This might be too close to home for some of you. And it's been a roller coaster of a game. And the score is finally neck and neck. Someone's made a big comeback. And in the closing seconds, your opposing team's star player shoots a dagger. A shot that puts the game up by two possessions. And the rowdy crowd is silenced. The confidence is sucked from the arena. The hands and shoulders of everyone has grown slack. Everyone knows it's over. People start leaving to beat the traffic, even though the final whistle hasn't blown yet. This is Ishbosheth. The dagger has been thrown, and Abner lies dead as a result of it. He still sits on the throne, but the game is over. Without Abner, Ishbosheth has no guidance, no direction. It was Abner, after all, who had appointed him king. It was Abner who had led Saul's army for decades. Ishbosheth has only been on the throne for two years. Abner was the expert, the one with experience, the master of military and diplomatic strategy, the one who all the people of Israel knew and trusted and loved and respected. Abner was his advisor, his counselor, his protector, his uncle. Without Abner around, Ishbosheth is nothing. He's weak, inexperienced, lacking in knowledge, vulnerable to attack. You see, Ishbosheth was more like a puppet king, a marionette. And Abner had been the one pulling the strings. And now, like a puppet whose strings had been cut, his hands had fallen slack. Now, if Abner was the prop upon which the whole kingdom rested, then like a tower of Jenga bricks, Israel itself is now on the verge of collapse. Because look at the end of verse one. What do all the rest of the people think? It says, all Israel was dismayed. Now, dismay doesn't quite convey the meaning. The Hebrew word encompasses alarm and terror, horror and dread. The word dismay is the same Hebrew word that was used to to describe King Saul in 1 Samuel after he consults the medium and she brings Samuel back up from the dead and he prophesies to Saul that he will die the next day. Immediately, Samuel, or sorry, excuse me, Saul freezes up. He falls to the ground full length. He is dismayed, the text says, filled with fear, paralyzed, no strength left in his body. Dismay is the same word used in Genesis to describe how Joseph's brothers were feeling when he revealed himself to them. The moment he showed his identity and they feared for their lives because they had hated him and sold him into slavery so many years ago and now there he was in front of them, running the country and their very lives were in his hands. They knew when he said, I am Joseph, that they were as good as dead. They were dismayed. And this is dismay. Israel knows here they are as good as dead. Perhaps they fear Joab. Because if Joab had slaughtered Abner, what prevents him from continuing in rampage and exterminating all of ish subjects? If Abner, the peace broker, was gone, what would become of the treaty? Was it annulled? And so the people were terrified and fearful They saw and knew that their king was powerless. Their fearless military leader was dead. They were at an utter loss for what to do next, afraid of what the future might hold. But wait, there might be another option. Saul still has a grandson in his bloodline. So skip down to verse four. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And so here we have Mephibosheth, the son of the oldest prince, Jonathan. And more than anyone, Mephibosheth would be the qualified successor to the throne after his uncle Ishbosheth. It would be right to turn to him next. The problem is, two things mar his candidacy. First, he's only a kid. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death came to the house. That was probably only a couple years before. And second, worse than his youth, the issue was his disability. In a freak childhood accident, when that news came, he lost use of both his legs. He was lame for life. So he wouldn't make a good king. He wouldn't be able to go out in battle. He wouldn't be feared or respected by the people or their enemies. He wouldn't even be able to work. If he weren't royalty he'd be poor. In Bible times, he'd be a roadside beggar because of his disability. Mephibosheth is even more hopeless than Ishbosheth. The king has weak hands. The heir has weak feet. This, my friends, is the state of Saul's dynasty, and this is why Israel was terrified. There was no man to turn to. No one the nation of Israel could trust to lead them. And this points us to the greater truth that it is hopeless and futile to trust in man. Every human dynasty comes to an end. Every person will perish. And even while we're still alive, everyone suffers weakness. Psalm 146 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Every man... Every one of us will take our plans, our goals, all our good intents to the grave. What does that mean for us? Well, it causes us to ask, who do we turn to then? And what hope do they hold for us? Is our trust in a political party or a president? You know that terms end, and usually when terms end, the other party takes over. Well, you say, what about the Supreme Court then? Those terms don't end, huh? Well, we've learned that precedent means nothing, both for good and for evil. The court will change. Decisions can be overturned. And again, that's true for good and for evil. What about aside from politics? Maybe you hope that your supervisor will put in a good word for you so you can get that recognition, that promotion. Maybe you're holding out hope that your spouse or your kids will finally listen to you this time and maybe change Maybe you're hoping that you can trust your church leaders to stand firm and hold to the right vision that keeps the church exactly the way that you like it and you want it to be, and honestly, we hope so too. But the question is, what if these things don't happen? What if all your hope for the future is resting upon these linchpins, where if they are pulled out, threatens to leave you distraught and dismayed? What if the caring CEO who is like a father figure to the company leaves and is replaced by someone arrogant, ruthless, and hostile? What if your parents make an executive decision for your family that affects your life in a way you don't like? What if the organizations you're involved in start leaning more liberal or embracing things you don't agree with? What if your boss doesn't follow through on the raise you were promised? You see, even if it isn't a person you are trusting, it's probably something very human maybe like your health. If you lost your health or your strength or the soundness of your mind, would that tear your world apart and spiral you into depression? Or would you be like Johnny Erickson Tata who turned her paralysis into an amazing life of faithful ministry? Or like John Piper who could write the book, Don't Waste Your Cancer? Is there someone or something in your life, a leader, a cause, an opinion, a felt need perhaps that is so near to you and on whom or on which you depend so dearly that without it, you would be hopeless and dismayed? The truth is that if your hope is in something human, then one day it will fail you. Either because of their sin or yours, or just because we live in a fallen world filled with injustice and tribulation where time marches on and hurdles us all toward decay and death. The truth is no man is perfect. Death is inevitable. And that means no man can be trusted with our lives or our well-being. In man, there is no salvation, no hope. And putting your trust in man or in humanity or any type of human system will only lead to crushed hopes and fearful paralysis. But the Bible introduces here two other men. Two hopefuls, perhaps. Look back at verse 2, which we skipped. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name, the name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Here we meet two of Ishbosheth's military officers. And it kind of makes sense if you go down the chain of command, right? The king is useless, the successor is hopeless. The army commander is, well, lifeless. But wait, what about the captains? Rehob and Banna, the leaders of troops, capable, proven in battle, trusted. These guys might be the exact rank and type of people Israel can look to now. And here the word goes a little in depth into their family history. We kind of wonder why it's there. It says their father Ramon was from a city called Biroth. And for a quick history, back in Joshua 9, when Israel was first conquering the promised land, Biroth was one of four cities that back in the day had tricked Israel's leader, Joshua, into a covenant. You see, up to that point, God had been powerfully leading Israel in miraculous defeats of powerful cities like Jericho and Ai, defeats that made it evident that God was on their side and fighting their battles. And so the neighboring cities became afraid, knowing that they're next. Among them, Viras. And so they come up with a plan. They dress themselves in rags. They take some moldy, uh, stale food with them. They come and they approach Joshua and they say, we come from far away and we want you to make a treaty with us that we can be at peace. Joshua falls for it. They make the treaty. But when Joshua discovers the trickery, it's too late. And so these cities, although they're in the promised land, they are allowed to stay there and live among Israel. Israel ends up conquering all the land around them. And then when you get to Joshua 18... When the land is apportioned into the twelve tribes, Beeroth is subsumed into the land of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay. Now, 2 Samuel 4 makes sure to explain this for a reason, that though his family is from Beeroth, these guys are not foreigners. Rather, verse 3 explains that at some point, these native Beerothites, the ones who descended from the people who tricked Joshua, had actually fled and left to another city, Gitaim. And now Beeroth is inhabited by Benjaminites. Other local Israelites came and inhabited the city in their territory. The point is to make it clear that Ramon was a Benjaminite by blood. And why is that important? Well, who else is a Benjaminite? Kish, father of Saul, father of Ishbosheth. These two brothers come from the king's own tribe. But their relationship to Ishbosheth makes their actions even more shocking. They do what you least expect when we get into verse 5. And this is the second point. Scheming hands and feet. First, we saw slackened hands and feet of Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. But now we look to Rechab and Banna's crafty plan with scheming hands swift to shed blood and scheming feet quick to flee for their reward. And what this shows us is the recklessness and idolatry of trusting in ourselves. Trusting in ourselves. You see, the story of Rechab and Banna is a story about taking things into our own hands. With the kingdom collapsing all around them, they decide there's only one set of hands they trust, their own. And here's how it went down, starting in verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berithite, Rechab and Banna set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baena, his brother, escaped. Just like that, the king is so quickly assassinated. These brothers, they hatched a plan to pay the king a visit one day at noon when they knew he would be resting. And the way they got in was by pretending they were going to get wheat. Now, this wasn't uncommon as troops were often paid at least partially in grain or in corn to help sustain their families. So the captains would regularly have had access to the king's storehouse to get the compensation for their troops. And so they had an opportune time. They had access. But when you get to verse seven, there's an interpretive issue here that it seems chronologically out of place, right? They've already done the deed and escaped, but now they're back in the house. The simplest explanation I think is best that the author was giving a summary in verse six of what happened. And now he's rewinding to go into more detail and to elaborate on exactly what happened. So in verse seven, when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him they took his head and went by the way of the araba all night and brought the head of ishbosheth to david at hebron so the author clarifies a few things here that the king was not just relaxing watching netflix he was asleep in bed he was completely defenseless and they stabbed him and interestingly the way they murder ishbosheth is exactly the same way that joab had killed abner and the exact same way abner had killed asahel for the third time in three chapters, someone gets murdered by being stabbed in the stomach. Also, we find out that this wasn't just a hit and run. They didn't just stab and flee, but they saw to it that he was actually dead. They beheaded him. And once the scheming work of their hands was complete, their scheming feet kicked into high gear. You see, they go by the Arabah all night with his head. That's the Jordan Valley, a journey of 80 miles. 80 miles is just over three consecutive marathons. And at a brisk pace, if they could keep it up, and they probably could. They were warriors after all. It would probably take 15 to 20 hours. And it makes sense then that they went all night. They beheaded the king at noon, went through to midnight, ran all night. And then they arrived in Hebron first thing in the morning, just as King David was sitting down for coffee. You get to the middle of verse 8. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. See, they approached David as newsbearers. No one could have discovered the body and beaten them there. That's why they ran, not only to be the hands that performed the acts, but also the mouths to herald it. Imagine David waking up to this shocking sight, two enemy warriors panting on his doorstep, delivering the bloody, severed head of their own king, his rival king, but their commander-in-chief, their tribesmen. Why did they do it? Well in chapter three, we saw that the tribe of Benjamin explicitly was on board with Abner's plan for peace. They wanted to be united under David, so Raqkab and Ba'ana or Bana, were probably simply carrying out Abner's plan in his absence, thinking that they could guarantee the peace by ending Ishbosheth's reign, and this would be their first act of loyalty to their new king. You see, they called David, "My Lord, the king." They appealed to him, hoping to gain his favor and hoping for his reward for uniting the kingdom. And as they speak, they explain that this must be God's judgment upon the house of Saul and his offspring. They claim this must be the vengeance of the Lord himself. They say the Lord has avenged. They explain that they are on God's side. They're doing God's work. But there's nothing here indicating that this was from God. In fact, in the very next section, we'll see that David calls these men evil and has them executed you see all they did was pursue their own idea of what was right they wanted to be the heroes to make their own mark they wanted to live according to their own righteousness and then to claim after the fact after the fact that it was the will and the work of god when there was no one else to look to they looked to themselves they took on responsibility that wasn't there they responded to a calling that was not from god but from the wickedness of their own hearts and their selfish actions were reckless in their fear and uncertainty, seeking to seize the opportunity and make a name for themselves. They went and did something incredibly rash and they thought it was right. They thought it was God. They took things into their own hands and thought it was his will. Proverbs fourteen twelve says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Where did their scheming hands and feet lead them but to death? They thought the work of their hands and feet was a triumph. There was no remorse, only pride, accomplishment. They thought they were the executors of God's vengeance. They were confident. But wrongly so. It led them to the grave. We all have times when we think we know what is best. We take things into our own hands, pursuing our own ideas of what is right without seeking God's will, and we think that God is in it when he actually has nothing to do with it. My worst experience in ministry in the church was when I took a serving role for the wrong reasons. Fresh out of college, I returned home to the Chinese church I had grown up in, eager to serve and get involved. In college, I had been trained in AV, audiovisual, running the soundboard, all the tech stuff that Matt and his team do in the back for Zoe. So when I was back at my home church, I chose to step into the role of AV director. And remember, I did it for a few reasons. First, there was a vacancy, and I knew I could fill that need. The gifting aligned. I thought it was a sign. Two, there was a bunch of stuff done horribly by the previous director who had held the position for years. It was stuff against building code. It was homemade electrical connections that were fire hazards, suboptimal speaker array setups, underpowered amplifiers, outdated equipment from the 80s, and so on. And I knew all that because I was involved in the worship team as well. I knew I could step in into that role and fix all these problems and bring the church into the 21st century to be a hero. And third, it was a church officer position, which at a Southern Baptist church is the equivalent of what Zoe considers to be deacons. Basically, I'd be able to attend the leadership meetings with the pastors and be the youngest officer ever in the history of the church. Go me. The bottom line is I didn't seek the Lord at all. When I accepted the role, it appealed to my flesh, my pride and my desires. And frankly, that became my worst experience in ministry so far. I had ongoing conflicts with church leaders and with people on the team. I offended people with how I tried to institute changes. I embarrassed myself once in front of the whole church in a business meeting. I had a contentious relationship with the previous director to the point that one time I had the gall to call him to his face, to call his faith into question. I was only there because it was a need I could meet, a gap I was qualified to fill, and I could be there to save the day. And I thought all along it was from the Lord that he had trained me, that I was skilled for the role. I was in the right place at the right times from God, isn't it? It wasn't. I was there to make myself look good, and God used it to humble me. As I mentioned, that year I was also leading the music team. I was also the music director. And I will admit, I think I'm a better sound tech than singer. But for some reason, the music ministry was thriving. And I think it's because when I joined that, I just wanted to make God's name great and have the church praise him and not be about me. The tech ministry, which was about me, completely flopped. How often are we tempted to turn to ourselves to save the day, to seek our own glory and honor, even as we are claiming to do things for God? John Calvin made this observation of the human condition saying, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. Isn't that so true? We want to last forever, to establish our kingdoms, to leave a legacy that lives on. We want to be immortal in the effects that we have on this earth. In other words, we make ourselves into gods, which at its core is idolatry. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? If we take a sober look at ourselves and pull back the curtain, I'm afraid we might find that it is ourselves. Think about something that you want, but aren't getting. Is there anything God hasn't given you that you want so badly that you're willing to sin to get it? Maybe it's a career change. Maybe it's a certain relationship or for your kids to be a certain way. And the question is, how far are you willing to go or what things are you willing to compromise to get that job? What convictions will you give up to get married? What avenues are you willing to go down to start a family? How badly will you treat your children or your spouse or your coworkers to get what you want from them? And the trouble is in all these things, we might think we're being faithful. We might think we're pursuing or even doing God's will, even claiming that something is from him when really it's just us doing what we want. We might lie to improve our circumstances and then say, oh, that was such a blessing from God. We say, God gave me that promotion when we really deceived and hurt others to get it. We might be lovers of money, cheating on our taxes and justifying it by tithing. We might constantly cross the line in anger and harshness with our children, all in the name of righteous correction. Brothers and sisters, don't be mistaken. God is not served by immoral practices. I think most Christians today agree that the Crusades were probably not the best idea to advance God's kingdom by force. Those who thought God was glorified through violence and persecution and murder were clearly misled, hypocritical, and just plain wrong. And yet, we might find ourselves as Christians today claiming to represent God and acting in his good service while also using methods that God himself clearly despises. Hatred, harsh speech, dishonesty, lack of self-control, impatience, complaints, discontentment. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, when we pursue our own way recklessly, instead of waiting on God and his will, we are seeking first our own kingdom, aren't we? And our own righteousness that justifies us. Sure, we might rationalize it or justify it with scripture, saying we're doing it in the name of the Lord, but the bottom line is we are idolaters who have been deceived by our own hearts. Rahab and Banna, they thought they had done well for the good of everyone. But what did they actually do? They repeated the exact sin Of Joab, which was condemned. They repeated the exact violence of Abner. And if we look at this with with eyes wide open, we see how blind they were in their scheming. But brothers and sisters, how blind are we? We are more gullible to what our own sinful hearts tell us than to anything outside of us tempts us to believe. We listen here. The antidote is this: instead of turning to ourselves to listen. We need to speak to ourselves. Don't listen to your heart. Speak to your heart. We must remind ourselves of truths from God's word about him. In times of hopelessness and dismay, what our despairing souls need to hear most is this, Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Take things into your own hands. No. Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So following the example of the psalmist, yes, yes, Turn to yourself in times of trouble, but go to yourself not to listen, but to speak. Admonish your soul and tell yourself of the great hope you have in God. Remind yourself of his benefits, his character, and his salvation. And only then will your heart abandon its selfish schemes, its recklessness, and turn to the Lord. And that's the third point. The third point, slack hands show we can't trust others. Scheming hands show we can't trust ourselves. And the chapter ends with severed hands. Severed hands and feet. Which points us to the only one we can trust. You see, David executes the brothers to teach us and to teach Israel that we must trust in the Lord alone. Look at verse 9. But David answered Rahab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? In David's response to his, to these brothers, he highlights one simple truth, one singular truth about God that everything hangs on. He says, as he gives this oath to kill them as the Lord lives, who redeemed my life out of every adversity. This is the center of it all for David. God alone is his redeemer. In all things, through thick and thin, through every trial, every threat, every flight, every enemy, whether Philistine like Goliath or Israelite like Saul, God faithfully redeemed and rescued David time and time again. David can truly say, I only need God. I don't need you. I don't need your so-called service or loyalty. God is my deliverer. Here's the difference between Rechab and Baanah and King David. While the brothers are quick to take vengeance into their own hands by their own judgment, David, on the other hand, knows that he must wait on the Lord. The Lord will be his salvation. To take things into his own hands would be to say that he doesn't trust them in the Lord. This way, he is free to live in integrity and uprightness. Listen to David's words in Psalm 25, verses 20 to 21. He says, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. David is able to live in integrity and uprightness because he leaves the work of vengeance to the Lord. Others may seek his life, but God will redeem his life. This is the God whom David knows, in whom he trusts, and for whom he waits. David simply declares, I trust God. I trust God. And so David calls out Rehob and Bana for their evil. He tells them the story from 2 Samuel chapter 1, when the Amalekite came to him, taking credit for killing Saul, thinking he was bringing good news. And this parallels the situation now, that these men are thinking they're bearing good news, having defeated David's enemy, hoping for a reward. But this news is not good news. And the reward won't be a good reward. Just as David had executed the Amalekite, so will he do to them he calls them wicked men and he calls ishbosheth a righteous man now, i don't read too much into this he's not saying that ishbosheth was sinless or even good he's saying he was innocent he had done nothing deserving of murder he hadn't wronged these two men but in contrast how wicked a person must a person be to take the life of a helpless man unarmed and asleep in his own home and so while they thought they had been executing vengeance David's the one who will bring about God's true vengeance. The brothers thought they were God's avengers, but they were just common murderers. David does what the law requires. Leviticus 24, 21, Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death because thou shalt not murder. If you kill, God's justice demands that you be killed. He requires their blood for the blood of Ishbosheth on their hands. And so those bloody hands of theirs get removed from them. They're severed. Verse 12 And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Severed hands and severed feet. He cuts them off and he has their handless, footless bodies hung on display in an open place, the pool at Hebron, in public. This was to be a spectacle that all passersby would see and heed the warning that the hands that shed blood and the feet that flee with evil intent will not stand. Where is our hope? Where is our trust? If not in the Lord, we are in a dangerous position. Like Israel, we too live in uncertain times today. We are also dismayed. We fear the future, perhaps. We dread what lies ahead as a society, morally, in the culture, in the economy, in politics, in the climate, in the world. We fear what lies ahead, as Israel did. And fear and dismay makes us do funny things, reckless things, selfish things. For example... We don't know if we can trust medical professionals, so we start researching our own alternative solutions. Or we don't trust mainstream media, so we turn to private sources or underground theories. Maybe you didn't identify with the first point when I asked who you trust too much because you don't trust anybody. You're already that far on the other side. You've lost faith in everything. You're wary of law enforcement, social media, news outlets, public schools, the Walt Disney Corporation, big tech, big pharma, big business, big government. You think you can't trust anything because they all have hidden agendas. Am I right? Look, I'm not defending any of these things. I think some of them are real concerns. And I tried, just so you know, to include in that list some things I believe and some things I don't. Don't try to figure out which is which. But the question is where does it push you? Where does that mentality send you? What is the fruit of your fear? Does it mean you can't be at peace until you've boycotted enough companies? That the only um, way to live is completely off the grid? That research will be your rescue? That debunking will be your defense? That seclusion will be your savior? When you can't trust anybody, do we seek peace of mind through our own efforts? our own interpretation of events, our own interpretation of information and our own decisions we make based on that. We're just trusting ourselves because the question remains, where does our hope lie? Where do we turn? What programs or philosophies do we chase to save ourselves? This week I was researching surgery options for a loved one who is fighting cancer. And one study I found showed that the number one reason by far that people preferred a particular aggressive type of surgery, even when medically unnecessary, was for peace of mind. Number one reason people opted for this. But as we were talking, I said, praise God, our peace of mind doesn't come from picking the right procedure, does it? Our peace of mind, brothers and sisters, comes from the Lord. Otherwise, you'll second-guess your choice forever, forever, whether you chose to do it or not to do it. Our certainty doesn't stem from survival statistics, but from a sovereign Savior. Look, if God wants you to be in that 5%, you will be in that 5% 100% of the time. If that's God's will for your life, and it's good and right and perfect, can we not accept that from a good God? Brothers and sisters, are we not to just say with David, I trust God. I trust God with my kids, wherever they go. I trust God with my singleness. I trust God with my difficult marriage. I trust God with the future. I trust God with my low wages and my high rent. I trust God with my depleting 401k. I trust God with the whole future, my God who has redeemed my life out of every adversity is trustworthy. Are we willing to trust God that though all these things are outside of our control, he remains above it all and in control? Do we trust that God is bigger than big whatever? He always has been and he always will be. But remember this, because God is in control, then his just reward for all our actions will ultimately come about. He will bring about both reward for the good, but also the recompense for evil. And that's a guarantee. You see, God is not just deliverer and savior. He's also judge and executioner. The same God who delivers David demands the execution of Rahab and Banna. Why? because though he is gracious and merciful, he also will by no means clear the guilty. He is just, and he is jealous, and he is righteous to visit wrath upon those who oppose him. And that's bad news for all of us. It's a scary thing to think we might come before God just like Rechab and Baana, possibly thinking that we have done good, even thinking we've done his work expecting his reward we would not be unlike those whom jesus warns us in matthew 7 who in the last day will say to him lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and jesus will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness you see, King David's rebuke of Rechab and Banna is the same rebuke of the king of kings, Christ himself, who sees through every facade and veneer of self-righteousness and whose gaze pierces directly at the wickedness of the human heart. God looks at the heart and for our lawlessness, he will also require our very lives. Like David, he will decree our destruction from the earth. We can't trust anyone or anything else for our salvation, even our good works. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. But Psalm 118 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And this is truly good news. That though every man fail us, including ourselves, there is one whom we can trust. There is one to whom we can look. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know what hands and which feet to look to? Not the slack ones, not the scheming ones, not the severed ones. Look to the scarred ones. The hands and feet that took the nails. The hands and feet of Christ, who was brutally fastened to a cross. Jesus Christ, God himself in human form, and Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly holy his whole life and therefore never needed to die. But we all know how it ended. He was crucified. He was killed by the will of God, put to death not for his own sins, but for ours. We each should have been strung up like the bodies of Rechab and Banna, but instead Jesus hung in our place. But unlike at the pool of Hebron, We look upon the cross not as a spectacle of warning or threat of punishment, but we look upon the cross as a spectacle of grace and mercy. Our punishment has already been taken by our Savior, who broke through into our hopeless humanity and showed us that he alone can be trusted for true deliverance. And the good news continues. Jesus Christ was raised back to life the scarred hands were beheld by the disciples able to be seen and touched. And to this day and forevermore, Jesus Christ is in heaven, the slain and resurrected lamb of God reigning on his heavenly throne in full authority over everything. And our King of Kings wants us to simply trust him to trust his dominion, to trust his control, For he rules over all things according to his perfect wisdom and his goodwill. Will you trust such a God? We'll close here. Sabine Moreau, the Belgian woman, had blindly trusted her GPS for two days, and she finally came to her senses in the middle of Croatia when she no longer understood the languages on the street signs. And realizing she must have gone the wrong way, she stopped and turned back around. Brothers and sisters, blind trust will leave us high and dry. Misplaced trust will lead us on the path to destruction. But to stop and turn around, to repent, to come to our senses like the prodigal son and beeline back home, now that's grace. That's grace. If you are wandering in a foreign land, miles and countries off course, God invites you to return today. One thing we learn from King David is that even a man as great as he, God's anointed one, the man after God's own heart, he is not immune to trusting in the wrong things. Yes, he leaned heavily on the Lord for almost everything, but David wasn't perfect. Every time he failed to trust the Lord, he fell. We've seen him make mistakes in 1 Samuel. That's how he ended up behind enemy lines with the Philistines. And we will see him sin even more in Second Samuel. And every time he falls, it's because he's trusting in himself, listening to himself, and choosing to pursue his own desires. And if he failed, how much more will you and I fail? But King David also points us to the greater king. The greater king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the only one who never failed, who never sinned, and he's the only one who will never fail you. He is God himself. He is David's greatest need. He is the nation of Israel's greatest need. And he remains our own greatest need. The question is will you trust him? Let's pray. I'm going to provide you an opportunity now to respond. Perhaps you were thinking about something in one of the applications. Maybe something came to mind in terms of a situation you're in right now that seems hopeless or maybe where you aren't getting the thing that you want most. I want to give you a chance to pray and respond to the Lord. Let's pray that we'll have the right perspective and to truly seek and accept God's will for us in this situation. And so let's commit that to the Lord right now. I'll give you a couple minutes to do that. You all can keep praying if you need the time, but I do want to extend an opportunity as well for those who have not known this Savior, Jesus Christ, who have not heard this good news and who are maybe understanding for the first time the need to repent. And if you will, in the silence of your hearts, I would invite you to confess your sins to the Lord and Admit how much we've fallen short and taken our lives into our own hands and failed. How much we have displeased a holy God. And maybe you need a little more time to learn some more about what that means, but if you've been waiting to return to the Lord, this could be the day, and we pray that it is. So I want to to give you an opportunity to to respond to God in your hearts as well, to confess your sins and to repent and to admit your need for a Savior, and to believe that Jesus Christ has come to live a perfect life and to give that to you an eternal life where he has taken your sins on the cross and died for you, for your sins, and taken away that penalty if you come to him in faith and repentance. I'll give you some time to pray and to reflect on those things as well. If you have questions about Jesus or Christianity or even how you're doing, we invite you to find a pastor this afternoon. You can talk to me. You can talk to the welcome team or whoever brought you, anyone you know at the church. We want to encourage you and walk with you and share with you the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would change us, God. You know where each of us is at this day where we might even have been doing things, pursuing things, seemingly serving you, and ultimately our motives have been all wrong. Lord, help us to let go of our kingdoms, our legacy, to dethrone the desires from our hearts and to worship you, Lord. We pray that you would take the place of worship centrally within us, that you would receive all the glory in all that we do. We thank you for saving us, for loving us, sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. We are forever thankful. Lord, we love you. Make us yours. Help us to worship you fully with all of our being. Commit ourselves to you now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.